Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. And I thank you for worshiping and praying the way you just did, because for a few moments tonight, you're going to think I've lost my ever-loving mind, which is entirely possible, but we'll let you be the judge of that. I can almost guarantee that you've never heard pastor preach on this subject. You've never heard any evangelist preach on this subject. You've never heard any missionary address this subject. I can almost guarantee it. So you're going to think I've lost my mind for a few minutes, and then we'll try to get back. My subject for your consideration tonight is um, Cinderella. I didn't think you'd ever heard a preacher preach about that. Song of Solomon is undoubtedly one of the most unique books in the entire Bible. It's also one of the most disputed and difficult books to understand. At one point, it looked like Song of Solomon wouldn't even be included in the Bible, in the canon of Holy Scripture, because it has frank descriptions of intimacy and sexual love. But the Jews, they they knew something that we need to know. They always revered this little book. They still read it every year during the Feast of Passover. And the reason why is that Song of Solomon paints a picture of an engagement and a wedding and a marriage. And they understand it this way, that Israel was engaged to Jehovah on the night of the Passover when he delivered them from Egypt. And then she was married to Jehovah on Pentecost when the nation accepted his covenant, the Ten Commandments, at Mount Sinai. And just before they entered the promised land, Moses kind of refreshed their their minds and their memories about that covenant that God had made with them. Deuteronomy 7, he said, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. Now, before you get a big head about that, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, because actually you were the fewest of all people. It wasn't about you. It wasn't about your goodness or your greatness, but it was because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. That's why the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the, house of, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's why. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. He's the faithful God. He keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In Exodus 20, that passage about the Ten Commandments, There's a scripture there when it's giving us the Ten Commandments. There's a verse there that says something very troublesome. It says, The sins of the fathers are visited upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And you don't have to take my word for it. You don't even have to take scripture's word for it. You can read your newspaper and figure that out. That often an alcoholic raises an alcoholic. Didn't intend to, but it just happens. Often an abuser raises an abuser in their home, in their family. It just happens. It's the tragedy and the travesty of sin that's visited down through the family tree. And so the Bible says in that passage in Exodus 20 about the Ten Commandments that the sins of the fathers are often visited on their children and their children's children. 
And it goes down through a family tree like a horrible disease to the third and fourth generation. But this verse tells me that the mercy of God flows down through a family tree to a thousand generations. Which means if you're a first generation apostolic and you just kind of appeared at the Calvary Church over the last few months and you sometimes look around and feel like you can't even keep up because all these good people and they've lived for God and they've marinated in the Holy Ghost for all these years and how am I going to keep up with that? Let me tell you, when you made a decision to follow God, you blessed your family tree in every direction for a thousand generations. There's nothing like the mercy and the grace grace of God. It's amazing. Now on the surface, Song of Solomon is just a book of romantic poetry. It describes with frankness and yet with purity the physical attraction of a man and a woman to each other, and it shows human sexual desire as God intended. It is not pornographic on one extreme, but it's not prudish on the other extreme. It's pure. It's a beautiful thing. The Bible, see, it refuses to divide the sexuality of human beings from their relationship with a holy God because our creator creates all good things for us. The modern idea that we're just biological creatures and we can do whatever we want with our bodies in a purely physical world, that's not evidence of our sophistication. That's evidence of our spiritual poverty is what that is. Now, many pastors and many churches have used Song of Solomon for a Bible study on courtship and marriage. That's wonderful. They've used it even for premarital counseling. Um, that's, that's a great purpose. And those are biblical, they're helpful, they're practical purposes. But uh, you can't discover the deepest message of Song of Solomon un- until you look past the description of human love and you see a greater relationship between humanity and God. And of course, to the Jews, they took this to be an allegory of the love that exists between Jehovah and Israel. But in the New Testament, we see something far deeper. This is an allegory of the love that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So there's disputes and debates over the details, and and, and there's all kinds of different opinions about this little book. And uh, but you can learn a lot if you just open your heart to the Lord as you read it and as you study it. When uh, I was teaching through this months and months ago at home, and I, I you know, it can be a little confusing, so I, I drew the folks a map to show them uh, the pattern of Song of Solomon. So here, here's my map. Uh, because this book is Eastern ancient poetry. What? It's ancient poetry. It's Eastern poetry. It doesn't follow a clear linear thought progression like we would write in the West in modern times. So it's a little bit of a task to come up with a map of the book, but I think I did a great job, don't you? It's just amazing. Um, and, and here's the challenge with interpreting Song of Solomon. The The song, it flows back and forth between various speakers and it shifts seamlessly from scene to scene. Not much of a definite storyline here. And the poetry tends to circle back on itself a few times. There's dream sequences in here. And if you've ever had dreams, you know how weird they can be. And, and the themes are developed through uh, repetition of key moments and key phrases. And then to top it all off, after all that kind of confusion... Uh, there's this, that 
some of the images and the metaphors and the compliments used by the bride and the bridegroom as they describe each other, they're just hard on the head for those of us that live in the modern Western world. Like there's this one in verse one in, in chapter one, verse nine. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Now, I do not recommend if you're dating someone tonight and you're taking them out to eat after church that you look lovingly across the table in the restaurant and say to them, sweetheart, you look like a horse. I I don't recommend that. Now, you can try it if you want. Solomon did it. But see, that's our modern Western mind. See, we've forgotten just how beautiful and graceful horses can be when compared to other animals. But it's not just that. We're unaware of how valuable horses were in that ancient world. And then in the case of horses pulling royal chariots, they would be elegantly and expensively adorned. But it's even more than that because the, the, the Hebrew term here is feminine. This is a mare harnessed among the stallions, which would be the ultimate distraction to them. So it's actually very high praise. He's literally saying to her, I can't keep my eyes off you. But our modern Western minds don't quite comprehend the imagery. And that happens quite a bit, to be frank, um, between uh, all of the bride and the bridegroom talking to each other, uh, quite a bit throughout this little romantic poem. He, he tells her, um, you have dove's eyes. And that's not too bad. Um, this one's not so great. Uh, your hair is like a flock of goats. Early morning compliments, perhaps, Solomon? Oh, here's another early morning compliment. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. Now, I think he means they're all lined up and they're white, but I just take that to mean they're woolly and... They say weird things to each other. He says to her, your navel's like a round goblet and your belly's like a heap of wheat and your nose is like a tower and it just gets worse and worse. I don't recommend any of those compliments, really. But despite all of these obstacles, there's still pretty broad agreement on the structure of this book. It's three sections, and it describes the bride and the bridegroom in their engagement, and in their wedding, and then in their marriage. And those three sections are separated by two haunting dreams that are experienced by the bride, and she fears in those dreams that her beloved has left her. So if you take it as a whole, this is a a beautiful portrait of marriage that we leave our family of origin and we cleave one to another and then we weave together a new relationship for the rest of our lives. So it's, it's really beautiful. And of course, it's written by Solomon, this Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 4. And he spake 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. During his lifetime, King Solomon... He collected 3,000 wise sayings that he shared with his subjects as he would speak to them. But the book of Proverbs in your Bible, it only collects a few hundred of them in written form. Undoubtedly, the ones that Solomon considered to be the most profound or important. And in a similar way, although he wrote 1,005 songs, only one of his songs survived for us to read. He's the original one-hit wonder. Uh, and it is called the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. It's a Hebrew idiom, Song of Songs, like we would say the Holy of Holies or the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords. So it's really indicating that this is the greatest 
of all songs. Now, here's the thing about Solomon. Everybody knows about Solomon later in his life when he married many wives in order to establish peaceful, profitable relationships, political relationships with other countries. And in doing so, sadly, tragically, he became entangled with the gods of all those pagan women, and he violated the law of the Lord, and he turned his heart away from the God of his father, David. First Kings 11, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and here's the, the travesty, and his wives turned away his heart. But I have good news for you tonight. Song of Solomon predates all of that backsliding. It was written in his younger years. It tells the story of his first and his true love. You see, the early reign of King Solomon was the greatest time in all of history to be an Israelite. And 1 Kings paints a magnificent picture for us. Look at this, 1 Kings 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. He is literally the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. 1 Kings chapter 10. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, his palace, were of pure gold. None were of silver because in the days of King Solomon, silver was nothing accounted of. It's like, get that silver tray out of here. We don't use silver. This is the palace. Bring in the gold utensils. That was the day of Solomon. It was the greatest time in all of Israel's history to be an Israelite. It's the golden age of Israel. Now, so the Song of Solomon is meant to be understood on two levels. It celebrates human love and intimacy but it also points to humanity's ultimate purpose. You see, you were not created to be a drug addict. You were not created to be a container for every addiction and perversion that the world can dream of. You were not created to shoot stuff in your veins and drink until you can't think straight. You were created to have a relationship of love and intimacy with God and to be filled with his spirit and follow his wisdom. And that allows us to be united with him and with each other. And if we'll follow God's word, it allows us, like Solomon, to be wise rulers in our own lives, in our own world. And that's why the Song of Solomon, it ends with the bride and the bridegroom, united in love and intimacy, but this is, this is key, they're in a garden, just like the Garden of Eden, filled with trees. Look at this, Song of Solomon 8, verse 13. And I fell in love with this little verse when I taught through this book. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, she says to him, the companions hearken to thy voice, cause me to hear it. I cannot tell you what that little verse did for me. It burrowed its way into my heart. Jesus, other people hear your voice. Cause me to hear your voice. Pastor hears your voice, directs this great church, but it's not enough for pastor to hear your voice, and I get to hear pastor's echo of your voice two or three times a week. That's not enough, Jesus. If pastor can hear your voice, let me hear your voice. If the elders and the saints can hear your voice, Jesus, I need to hear your voice. Your companions, the people that walk with you and know you, they hear your voice, but Jesus caused me to hear your voice. 
I wish you'd let out a little bit of longing right now through your voice and just say, Jesus, I want to hear your voice. I need to hear your voice tomorrow when I go back to work. I need to hear your voice this week as I make decisions. I need to hear your voice as, as my family, as we negotiate some, some rough waters, Jesus. Other people hear your voice. If it's possible for them, it's possible for me. Cause me to hear your voice. So tonight, and I, I know you think, like, this is crazy. This is Mission Sunday. This is Sunday night. We don't always have Sunday night, and this is exactly why. <laughs> but tonight, if you'll be patient for, like, five more minutes, and then we'll try to get back on track here. Tonight, I want to just try to weave together the threads of this beautiful tapestry. And I want to look through the lens of the rest of Scripture to see this beautiful relationship between the Lord Jesus and his church. And by the time we put all the little pieces together, I think you'll know why God allowed this weird little book, this this love poem, this song of songs to be included in your Bible. There are thousands of variants of a folktale called Cinderella that are known and loved throughout the world. And in every one of those tales, in every one of those languages... The protagonist is always a young woman who lives in forsaken circumstances and suddenly her circumstances are changed to remarkable fortune and it's always because she ascends to the throne by marriage. The story's titled, character, the the main character's name, they change in different languages and cultures. But in English, the, the, the word Cinderella has come to mean someone whose beauty and attributes were previously unrecognized, but someone who unexpectedly, unusually achieves success or recognition after a long, long time of obscurity and neglect. In secular uh, literature, Disney didn't come up with Cinderella, by the way. In secular literature, the earliest variant of the Cinderella story was recounted by a Greek philosopher named Strabo who lived during the lifetime of Jesus. That's the earliest variant of the Cinderella tale that we know of. Strabo told this story of a Greek slave girl. Her name wasn't Cinderella. It was Rhodopis. And Rhodopis, although she was a pauper, she eventually married the king of Egypt. And so Strabo's the first one we know who told something of a Cinderella tale about this poor girl named Rhodopis who ended up marrying the king of the nation of Israel, the empire of of Egypt, rather. But a thousand years before Strabo ever lived and ever wrote his tale, a fictional tale, there was a real-life Cinderella who first caught the attention of the king of Israel. And that king, of course, is Solomon. He's the son of King David, the third king of Israel. He's the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. And he presides over the golden age of the nation when everyone lives in peace and prosperity, when the glorious temple and the royal palace were constructed, when people from distant lands traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles just to be in Solomon's presence, just to see his throne and his palace and his servants, just to hear his wisdom and observe his wealth for themselves. He's a builder extraordinaire. He is the chief architectural and engineering genius behind hundreds of construction projects throughout the whole land all at the same time. 
Later in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this, I made great works and I built houses and I planted vineyards and I made gardens and orchards and planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits and I made pools of water to water therewith the wood that brings forth trees. I I built aqueducts, I built irrigation systems, I built all of these houses and palaces and, and vineyards and orchards and it was amazing. It's truly the golden age of Israel. And one of those magnificent estates that Solomon built, it was a vast vineyard in the fertile Jezreel Valley that's in northern Israel. It's near a tiny village called Shunem. Uh, And this big estate, it was about 50 miles from the capital city of Jerusalem. It was a vineyard, huge vineyard. And here the king's subjects, they performed the arduous back-breaking work of tending the crops and pruning the vines, picking grapes, warding off thieves and predators, enduring the hot, baking, burning desert sun day after day. And then after they did all that, they had to give all their proceeds into the king's treasury because the king owned the whole country. He owned every square inch of soil, every tree and bush and shrub and vine in all of Israel. And, and Song of Solomon tells us this in chapter 8, verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He led out the vineyard unto keepers. Everyone for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. It wasn't their land. It wasn't their vineyard. They were just servants of the king who owned the whole country. And when you did all your arduous back-breaking work, you had to pay tribute to the king and bring him a thousand pieces of silver just for the privilege of working in his vineyard. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon lets us in on a little secret. He tells us that he often undertook expeditions because he wanted to to discover and know and understand what life was like in different areas and different strata of society. Sometimes he'd go to check on his vast land holdings. Sometimes he just went to kind of see what was going on with the common folk. And he would often disguise himself because if the king shows up, everybody's on their best behavior. But he wanted to really know what life was like. And you see that in in what he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, that he tried everything, he went everywhere he could, he tried to experience all that he could. And so one day when he was traveling north to Baal Haman, and he was just checking on his estate, checking on this vast vineyard that he had built, checking on all of his servants that were working uh, like little busy bees trying to make the harvest happen in his vineyard, One day when he was in Baal Haman, about 50 miles north of Jerusalem, his eyes just happened to fall on a beautiful pauper peasant girl who just happened at that very moment to be working in his vineyard. And in the heart of the king, it was love at first sight. And now King Solomon has a real dilemma because he and his true love They move in completely different orbits. They live in totally different worlds. Now, they're random meeting. That's improbable. But imagine this. A courtship between the king of the whole country and a pauper peasant girl who sleeps in a shack? That courtship is entirely inconceivable. A marriage between the two of them? Unimaginable. Never going to happen. Solomon has all power in Israel... But in matters of the heart, he's totally powerless because you can't buy love. And even if you could buy love, who would want it if you had to buy it? 
And that's what the song says. Verse 7 of chapter 8. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. Look at this. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly condemned. It would just be shut down. You can't buy love. And so the king of the whole country, the king who's the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived, the king who owns every square inch of soil in the entire nation of Israel, he has one major royal dilemma because he's in love. And every circumstance steps in between him and his true love because she's just a pauper. She's a peasant. She sleeps in a shack. 175 years ago, there was a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and he wrote a book called Philosophical Fragments. Now, Kierkegaard, he loved this little book in the Bible, Song of Solomon. He loved it. And so based on his love of this Bible book, in his book, Philosophical Fragments, he penned a short story, and he called it simply, The King and the Maiden. And if you'll permit me, and I know you think I've lost my mind, and this is why we shouldn't do Sunday nights anymore, Pastor. But, but this is a, a modern adaptation of The King and the Maiden from Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. It goes something like this in English. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden, but she had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing in the king's court. She dressed in rags, and she slept in a hovel. She lived the pitiful life of a peasant. But for reasons no one could quite figure out, the king fell in love with this girl in the way that kings sometimes do. Why he should love her was beyond all explaining. But love her he did. And he could not stop loving her. But there arose in the heart of this mighty king an anxious thought. How in the world can I reveal my love to this girl? How can I bridge the great chasm that separates the two of us? His advisors, of course, they just told him, all you have to do is command her to become your queen and it'll be done. For you're a man of immense power, O mighty king, and every statesman fears your wrath, and every foreign power trembles at your voice, and every subject, they grovel in the dust whenever you speak. So you just command it, and that poor peasant girl shall have no power to resist. She will have to become your queen. But you see, power, even unlimited power, cannot command love. Yes, the king could force her body to be present in the palace, but he could not force love to be present in her heart. He might be able to gain her obedience this way, but coerced submission is not what he wanted. He longed for intimacy of heart and oneness of spirit, but you see, all the power in the world cannot unlock the human heart. It must be opened from inside. And so the king met with his advisors once again. This time, they, they came up with a different solution. They told him to try and bridge the chasm by elevating her to your position, almighty king. You can shower her with gifts and dress her in royal robes. You can summon an audience of dignitaries and you can have her crown the queen. But the king knew that if he brought her to his palace, if she saw all of the wealth and pomp and power of his greatness... The king knew that she would be overwhelmed. 
How then could he ever know for sure if she loved him for himself or merely for all the blessings he had given her? And how could she know for sure that he loved her and that he would have loved her just as much if she had remained only a humble peasant? It's a royal dilemma. Every alternative his advisor suggested came up empty. And finally, that mighty king realized there was only one way to win the maiden's love without destroying her freedom to choose. He had to become like her. Without power or riches or the title of king. Only then would she be able to see him for who he really was and not just what he possessed. So one day, the mighty king arose from his throne, took off his crown, relinquished his scepter, and laid aside his royal robes. He dressed himself in rags, left the palace, and traveled to where she lived, all so he could win her heart. Yes, the king took on the identity of a pauper, and it was all for love. I think you know where we're going now. Would you thank God for a love that's so great that he would leave the halls of heaven and the streets of gold and all of the angels and he'd come here. He deserves a great praise out of this great church on a Sunday night. We're in the season of the year. We're already preparing when we celebrate what we call the incarnation. When God robed himself in flesh. It was just rags, folks. He came here for us. He came here so we would know his love for us. I wish you'd lift up your voice in this sanctuary and give him honor and praise. Oh, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. It wasn't just Kierkegaard. He didn't make that up. He was recounting Song of Solomon. And so it was that King Solomon, the king of the whole nation, the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived, the king who owned every square inch of that country, so it was that Solomon returned to the vast vineyard that he owned near the tiny village of Shunem. But no one would have recognized him this time. He didn't look like the owner. He sure didn't look at all like King Solomon. Because he was disguised in the garments of a humble shepherd. And he did this just to see if a real relationship between them could ever be possible. We don't know that girl's name. The scripture just refers to her as the Shulamite because she grew up near Shunem. The Shulamite girl, when this shepherd appears on her radar, she can't believe that even a shepherd could love her. She has spent a lifetime apologizing for her poverty and her appearance, and she just can't help herself. She can't comprehend that anyone would ever love her, even if he is just a humble shepherd. And if you read the tale of their meeting in Song of Solomon, she's totally embarrassed by her grubby face and her grimy hands, and she's humiliated by her tangled hair and her threadbare clothes and her tattered appearance. But none of this is her fault. She's sunburned from working outside all the time. She says, I am black because the sun has looked upon me. My skin is burned from the hot desert sun. Hard work has made her garments shabby and dirty. And she's scratched and sticky from picking grapes. She says, my own vineyard I have not kept. I've been so busy working that I look horrible. 
And even worse, her stepbrothers and stepsisters, she calls them my mother's children. They're angry with her all the time. They treat her harshly. They force her to endure long, difficult days in the vineyard. And those long, difficult days have now marred her beauty and damaged her dignity. Here's their meeting. She's apologetic from the first words out of her mouth. Song of Solomon 1 and 6, Look not upon me because I am black. The sun has looked upon me. The sun has burned my skin. I look horrible. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. They forced me to do hard labor. But mine own vineyard I have not kept. She's embarrassed and humiliated. But here's the point of the book. This handsome shepherd sees what nobody else sees. He looks beyond her battered appearance to see a beautiful bride. And when she puts herself down, he picks her back up. And when she has nothing but words of despair, he responds with expressions of love. She sees herself as a Cinderella But he sees her as the queen of his kingdom. He sees her as his beloved bride. May I say to you, I'm not trying to infringe in your space or get in your face or kind of tell the tale on your life, but I don't care what you've done or where you've been or what terrible mistakes you've made or what embarrassing activities you've been involved in. Jesus isn't looking at your history. He's looking at your destiny. He can pick you up out of any mess you've ever made or anybody else has made out of your life because he doesn't see your past he sees your future he doesn't see your sin he sees what he can make out of you when your life is washed in his blood and you're set free from your past that's what he sees he doesn't see you as some disgraceful, embarrassing sinner. He looks beyond all of that. And he said, I see in them a beautiful bride. Aren't you grateful for the day? For some of us, it's been a few years. I don't ever want to lose the memory. I don't ever want to lose the immediacy of remembering that moment when I first came to God and I first felt his touch. That was the day he looked beyond every sin and he looked beyond every mistake and he looked beyond every failure and he saw in me something that nobody else saw. Here's what he says to her. She said, don't look on me. My skin's burned. My garments are tattered. My hair's tangled. My, my hands are all scratched. I'm sticky from all the grapes and the, the, the vines and don't look on me. And he looks at her and here's what he says. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. That's how Jesus sees this church that you are part of. I know you may feel all, see all kinds of spots and all kinds of warts and all kinds of failures and all kinds of things that you think could be better about the family of God or maybe about your local church or maybe about your family or your life. But let me tell you, when Jesus looks at his bride, he looks down and all he sees is the shed blood of Calvary and his grace and mercy. And he looks at his church and he said, you are all fair, my love. I don't see any spot in you. We don't know how long their courtship lasted. But in this little book, there are at least two spring seasons referred to in chapter 2 and chapter 7. So it seems like 
Solomon must have visited Baal Haman repeatedly over several months, always disguised as a shepherd. And his plan worked because now it's the Shulamite's turn to fall head over heels in love, even though she never could quite figure out something. There are some funny things in the Bible. Here's, here's one of them. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, and verse 7. She says, Tell me, O thou whom my soul lovest, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? She says to him one day, um, Where are your sheep? All the other shepherds have sheep. All the other shepherds seem to have flocks. You never have any sheep with you. Where are your sheep? She never could quite figure it out. Eventually, his royal responsibilities, they take Solomon back to the palace in Jerusalem. But not before he promises her, I have to go away, but I will come back. And when I come back, on the day I come back, I'm going to make you my bride. That's the promise he makes. She still has no idea who he really is. She still has no idea that her handsome shepherd boy is actually the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. She has not a sweet clue that he's actually the king who rules over the country that she's a citizen of. All she knows is he's a shepherd and for some reason he took an interest in her. He was gone a long time. Sometimes she dreamed of him. Always she longed for him. Constantly, and that's why the book is a little confusing, constantly her thoughts wander ahead to the wedding that he has promised. But here's what you got to know. Nothing happened. Nothing happened for days, for weeks, for months. Nothing happened. Other than her love for him, nothing had changed in her everyday life. She still had to get up and go to her job every day. She still had to tend the crops and prune the vines and pick the grapes and chase off thieves and predators. And she still had to endure the hot, baking desert sun every day, day after day. Nothing's changed. Everybody looking on her, nothing has changed. She still looks like the same pauper peasant girl that they always knew. If anything's changed, is this. Now she has to endure the harsh mockery of her family and friends because they don't believe that that humble shepherd is ever going to return for her. They don't believe that he could really love her in the first place. And they taunt her and they mock her. Chapter 6 and verse 1, Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside that we may seek him with thee? They are mocking her to her face. And you read the book, sometimes she replies with calm assurance. But other times in her mind, she's battling nagging doubts. Is this really true? Am I imagining all of this? Sometimes she speaks with stubborn confidence, but other times you know that her eyes fill up with tears. Sometimes she responds with forceful courage, but other times she's tormented. But every time they ask, and every time she answers, her love for her beloved and her faith in his promise... That remains unchanged. It doesn't stop them from mocking her. 
chapter 5 and verse 9. What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? And on this day, she's had enough. And she turns around with calm assurance and she says, My beloved is white and ruddy. He is the chiefest among 10,000. I can't tell you much, but I can tell you this. He's better than anybody you've ever met. He's greater than anybody you've ever met. He loves me and I know that he does. My beloved is the fairest of 10,000. When you become a Christian and you start serving Jesus, all of your problems don't instantly get solved. You don't go home and all of a sudden you're living in a mansion and there's a cool new car parked in the driveway and all your problems are gone and your boss has totally changed and your coworkers they're amazing and that doesn't happen. As far as everybody else in this city knows, nothing really has changed for you. All you've got is this. You've got a love for your beloved and you've got a faith in his promise that he's going to come back. Other than that, nothing's changed. Oh, except... Sometimes people persecute you, you Pentecostals. What in the world do you think you're doing living like that? What do you think you're doing going to a church that's as crazy as that? What do you think you're doing? And it went on that way for days, and they turned into weeks, and they turned into months, and nothing happened. And then one day, an ordinary spring day, there was a great cloud of dust on the road, and all the common people ran to see What in the world was going on? And soon they could see a majestic procession and it was making its way straight up that dirt road to the vineyard. And the murmurs of the crowd soon became excited shouts. And if you'd have been there that day, you would have heard something like this. Look at that. It's King Solomon. That's King Solomon's chariot. The king is coming to our little vineyard. And sure enough, soon Solomon himself was arriving on a glorious chariot, a royal box carried by poles on the shoulders of his servants, and he was guarded by 60 soldiers. And with all the sweet incense being burned in honor of the king, it looked like a huge cloud was coming up that dirt road from the wilderness and entering the vineyard. Song of Solomon chapter 3, who is this? that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfume with myrrh and frankincense with all the powders of the merchant. Behold, his bed, his chariot, it's Solomon's. Three score valiant men are around it, the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords. They're expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. They're going to protect their king. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. It is the king of the whole country who's coming up that dirt road that day to the vineyard. And the Shulamites' abusive stepbrothers and stepsisters, no doubt they told her, you just continue working in the vineyard. The king would never want to see you. You're ugly. You're filthy. You're dirty. You sleep in a hovel. We'll go check out the royal spectacle. You stay here and you keep working. After all, what would a king, what would a wealthy king ever want with a poor pauper peasant girl? But on that day, to everyone's shock and amazement, King Solomon beckons to stop the chariot, and he steps out. And you know on that day, every face hit the ground. Everybody's bowing in terror of the king who owns the very ground that they're walking on. And King Solomon gets out of his chariot, and to everyone's surprise, 
he walks directly into the vineyard. And he walks directly over to this poor pauper peasant girl who's busy working with the vines. Imagine the Shulamite girl's surprise that day when she looks up from her labors to see the king of the whole country looking down at her. I imagine her instantaneous reaction was terror because if the king shows up, that's power. And maybe it was fear or shame. She's embarrassed of her appearance and she knows what his eyes are seeing. He's seeing a ragged, tattered little pauper peasant girl with her hair all tangled and her face all grimy and her hands all stained. She looks up in terror probably and then she notices something. She notices his face. She notices the smile and she sees the love in his eyes and then it clicks. She suddenly realizes what her heart could hardly dare to dream. It's her handsome shepherd and he has returned to marry her like he promised. But he's not just a humble shepherd. He's the king of the whole country. He owns everything and he's come back to her vineyard to marry her. Mm, my goodness. Chapter 2, verse 13, the fig tree puts forth her green figs and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. It's springtime and here's what he said to her. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And in one instant, her future changed forever because the king had come for her. He gallantly escorted her to his royal chariot to the amazement and the shock of the crowd that day. And together, he and her, the king and the pauper girl, they began their royal journey back to the city of Jerusalem where she will become Solomon's queen. In one instant, the vineyard is left behind her. Her endless days of toil and suffering are history. Her persecutors can never touch her or taunt her ever again. In one instant, her pauper's rags are exchanged for royal garments. In one moment, her address changes from a peasant girl's shack to a king's palace. And best of all, in that one moment, she gets to spend the rest of her life with her beloved, the king who became a pauper. Also a pauper could become his queen. And now the crowd that persecuted the Shulamite, they're absolutely astonished to see a peasant girl riding in a royal chariot with King Solomon. And they're even more amazed to think that this mysterious, humble shepherd that she constantly talked about, that all the time he was the king of the whole country. Now their tune has changed. Who is this that comes up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? And the story could easily end. And they lived happily ever after. It's a pretty cool story. That's not just the story of Song of Solomon. That's the story of the entire Bible. 
You wonder why the world doesn't understand you right now? It's because they only see Jesus as a humble shepherd. They don't understand who he really is. He's really the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the God of glory. He's the great I am. He's the creator of heaven and earth. They just don't have any sweet clue who he really is. But can I tell you something? You haven't seen him as he really is yet either. I know you love him. I know you believe him. I know you follow him. But you haven't seen him in his ultimate glory either. We'll celebrate it in this next month. We'll celebrate the incarnation. and We'll have little presentations and there'll be media. And we'll celebrate the king who humbled himself and left his throne and came and was born in a manger. We'll celebrate that. And we should. And, and, and Easter will come and we'll celebrate the king who died on a cross and was buried in a tomb and rose again the third day. And we might do an Easter presentation and we'll have somebody in a white robe representing Jesus and we'll have a paper mache tomb and we'll have a little fan and lights going on and music and we'll all dance and sing and celebrate. But if I can just tell you, Jesus is no longer the baby in the manger. He's no longer the Galilean or the rabbi or the teacher. He's no longer hanging on a cross. He's no longer in a tomb. But listen, he's no longer standing outside a tomb on Easter Sunday morning. He has returned to his throne in heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's the king of everything. He owns every inch of soil you've ever set your foot on. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the world just sees him as a humble shepherd. And we just happen to believe that the humble shepherd is telling the truth when he said, I have to go away. But if I go away, I will return. And on the day I return, I will make you my bride. We haven't seen him in his ultimate glory either, but we still love him. And Peter, the Pentecost preacher, I'm going to, you know, kind of, I'm just going to throw him some kudos tonight because I talked bad about him this morning. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, Peter wrote these words, Whom having not seen, you love. In whom though now you see him not, you yet believe. And even though we haven't seen him yet, and the promise hasn't come true yet, and nothing has changed in your everyday life, you still have to go to work and pay your bills and repair your car, and, and, and you've still got your job, and you've still got your kids, and you've still got all kinds of stuff that you deal with. And some of you are dealing with worse than that. You're dealing with sickness and pain and frustration and heartache, and that's just life. Can I tell you, Peter said, Even though you're going through all that, you believe and you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why? Because we just happen to believe that he was telling us the truth when he said, I'm going away, but I will return. And when I return, it's going to be a day like you couldn't even imagine. It will be different the next time Jesus comes. The world will see him like he really is. Let me tell you something else. I'm almost finished. Let me tell you something else. The world will see us as we really are. There was an old elder. Music, come on back. I, I, I don't know all your customs. It's Sunday night. I'm from a foreign country. But music, if you come back and help me deliver the saints, give them some hope. <laughs> Pastor, you remember this Sunday night, so you know, you're not tempted to do this again. And, 
There was an old elder in our church in Fredericton, New Brunswick, the little church that I grew up in when I was a kid. Not very much to look at. Plywood pews and panel walls and everything homemade, even the building. But I still remember the spot where I received the Holy Ghost on the second chair from the kitchen door in the basement. I still remember. I can, I can see the chair in my mind. I can see the place. You could set me down in that building with a blindfold on today and I could find you that spot. I remember being baptized in that little homemade baptismal tank. It wasn't a very pretty place to look at. There was an old elder in that church named Albert Stickles. And Albert Stickles used to stand up every once in a while when we were doing testimonies because we used to do those back in the day until they got too weird and dangerous. It's Sunday night. Pastor, you need to be careful here. Brother Stickles would stand up. And I remember being so in awe of him as a kid because he was a big man. And he, he had a tender side to him, though. And he would quote poetry that he wrote himself. And man, some of it was really, really good. After he had died, I talked to his widow, Sister Stickles. She taught in our Bible school for years. Beautiful lady. Lived to be over 100, if I remember right. She couldn't remember this little poem, and she couldn't find it in all of his writing, but I remember it. I never forgot it. I was just a kid. And he quoted, he never read anything. He quoted his poetry. Quoted this poem. I can't remember it word for word or line for line, but I remember the poem. (laughs) The poem went something like this. It was people in the world mocking the church and basically saying those crazy apostolic people, those idiotic Pentecostals going to church all those times every week. And the poem, he repeated it over and over again. There they go. There they go to church. There they go to Bible study. There they go again. There they go to prayer meeting. There they go. And then in the last stanza of that poem that Brother Stickles quote, never forget it. The narrative changed and it was rapture day and the world was standing back saying, there they go. There they go. There they go. You have no idea, apostolic people, who you actually are. You're not some ordinary piece of human garbage that just kind of is being beaten, battered along through life. You are the one that the king of all kings has set his love upon. You're his bride. He can hardly wait to get back here to welcome you to his eternal kingdom. He said these words in John 14, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Pastor Raymond, what in the world are you talking about on a mission Sunday? I'll tell you what I'm talking about. The only reason he's delaying his coming is because somewhere in Brazil, there's a little pauper peasant girl. There's a little family. There's, there, there, there's a little community. There's a little village that's obscure and remote. And Jesus has set his sights on that and said, there's some people in that village. There's some people in that great city that I want in my bride. That's why we take up offerings and make pledges and send missionaries. Let me tell you something else. There's some people in this great city that Jesus has set his sights on. And you 
might not think they're much. You might think they're disgraceful and dirty and embarrassing and humiliating. But Jesus doesn't see their past. He sees their future. He doesn't see their history. He sees their destiny. He doesn't see their mess. He sees the miracle he's going to do in their life. And he set his love on them and said, I want you in my bride. And so until he returns, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're going to keep taking up missions pledges and keep giving sacrificial offerings and keep sending missionaries and keep praying for missionaries and keep reaching our community and keep building a church in Oxford. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff because until he comes, we're going to keep adding people to his beautiful bride, as many as we can. And all the time we're waiting for these words. My beloved spake and said unto me, Someday you'll hear it. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. That's the cry we're waiting for. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.